Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So here we are again. Greetings from Edinburgh. We are remote uh, this week. I can see from... Is that your red box just behind you? I've specially got it out for you, Ed, so you can see I'm in my office here yeah, in London. I've got, I've got one too. But where have you been... Uh, this week, you were in the desert, I think. Yes, I was at the Davos in the desert. This is the big summit in Saudi Arabia. Uh, but I have to say the highlight was going to watch Christian Ronaldo play football and score a couple of pretty stonking goals and amazing atmosphere in the stadium. Better than when I watched my team Chelsea throw away a two-goal lead to Arsenal, which was made even worse because I was standing near Keir Starmer, who was cheering on the Reds. At least they drew. I was at Norwich City on Saturday, 2-0 up at half-time, lost 3-2. And to drown my sorrows, I then flew to Greece, where I was giving evidence to the Budget Committee of the Parliament about public spending and performance targets. And we can talk about that later on. But... We're going to have to talk first on the podcast about Israel and Gaza, the ongoing suffering there, the situation the hostages find themselves in, and what it means not just for international politics and security, but what it means here domestically for the Labour Party, which is something you, Ed, told us to watch last week. That it's the first anniversary of Rishi Sunak's premiership, and uh, we're going to ask, how is he doing? And in particular, is he on target to meet his big five pledges, which he has promised to deliver. And could that help him turn things around in the polls? 
And then we're going to have our very first guest on the podcast. We said we would have guests occasionally, and we wanted to bring people who you won't necessarily have heard of, but who will take us into the room when the big decisions are being taken. So we're really pleased to be joined by Matt Clifford, who is the person organizing Rishi Sunak's big AI summit, Artificial Intelligence. And that's taking place next week. So we thought we'd get ahead of that and talk about the kind of issues that that summit's going to discuss. And we're going to reveal some of the, the hidden truths about how these summits really work. First of all, though, as you said, we need to start with um, terrible events in Israel and Gaza. And a couple of weeks ago, we were saying that we thought the economic implications of these events were going to be less important outside of Israel and uh, Gaza. Obviously, economic, but also like just human tragedy unfolding day by day there. When you were at that um, event you were saying in Saudi Arabia, was the international financial community still kind of sanguine about economic risk? Or are people starting to think that instability in the Middle East could spill over? Well, the short answer is people don't really yet know what this horrific set of events means for the global economy and geopolitics. It's still contained is a very polarizing debate around Israel's rights as it goes to responding to those terrible terrorist attacks. Is, you know, is Israel's right to self-defense a right to bomb civilians in Gaza? And I don't think I can remember quite such a polarizing issue where people's opinions are so strongly held almost since the Iraq war, which, you know, both of us, we were not in prominent positions in politics at the time. But uh, it was, uh, I mean, you were actually, of course, an advisor in the government. But you know, that was obviously deeply polarizing. And I feel it's really deeply held these views at the moment on Israel-Gaza. Coming back to the big summit, which you've got to you know, hand it to the Saudis, they have managed to create this event uh, where the world's top bankers, investors, but also got a lot of politicians go to it, held in a big conference center and the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. And it's one of those things where there's a kind of main conference room where you get these big speeches from the head of Goldman Sachs or the South Korean president or our own deputy prime minister, Oliver Dowden. And then the real action is happening in not the bars, because it's Saudi Arabia, but in the uh, coffee shops and uh, hotel lounges uh, around the place. Um, it, it's interesting. People can't put a price on what's happening. They could, there's a human price, but they can't put an economic price. They, at the moment, it, you, know, you just hear people saying, we don't know what impact this is going to have. It fits to a picture of global instability, the conflict in Ukraine, a kind of crumbling US hegemony, which is being replaced by a much more fractious world. But what does that actually mean for the price of the dollar, the price of oil, and what's going to happen to stock markets? I would say this string of the world's top investors and bankers didn't really have an answer, other than to be in general pretty gloomy. But their gloom stemmed more from the decisions of Western central banks than what's happening in Gaza or inside the Israeli cabinet. It's interesting. I had a uh email a couple of weeks ago from um, a guy called Nick Butler, who used to be Downing Street advisor. He used to be the head of strategy for BP, who said that he thought we were a bit complacent when we said this isn't the early 1970s. He was saying that to have kind of global instability and conflict in the two big oil and gas 
producing parts of the world in Russia, in the conflict with Ukraine and in the Middle East at the same time is quite destabilising and it's not yet reflected in prices. But if the politics start to um, deteriorate in the Middle East, if Iran gets drawn in, then the economic implications could be bigger than we are thinking. That's not what financial markets are saying at the moment. I just kind of wondered in terms of the politics of that conflict, I mean, you know, let's be honest, Saudi Arabia is in, not really in a position to to lecture Israel, given what's happened in Yemen or Khashoggi in Istanbul. But did you feel as though there was a judgment being made amongst the um, the countries who were represented there from the Middle East about Israel? Or is the diplomatic strides which have been made in recent um, months, the bringing together of Israel and Saudi Arabia, is that still alive? I would say it's kind of barely alive, but it hasn't been finished off. And, you know, for those who haven't followed this, one of the really significant things that's happened in the Middle East in recent years has been a growing alliance between the Arab Gulf states and Israel, often united in their hostility to Iran. And we were on the verge of a Saudi-Israeli rapprochement. And the importance of that is Saudi is the dominant Gulf player. And there are other important smaller states like Abu Dhabi who've already signed a peace accord with Israel. But the big prize is Saudi. The Saudi government is the government there with the energy, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, obviously a controversial figure in the West, but you know there a much admired figure because of the change he's bringing to his country, which is very striking when you go to Saudi on a number of occasions, as I have over the years. And Jamie Dimon, who's probably the world's top banker, he's the uh, head of uh, JP Morgan, and has been for many, many years. He said something interesting this summit. He said, everyone's looking to Saudi to try and provide some leadership here as well, rather than just the US, just Israel. I think if you look at the diplomatic efforts that are underway, we talked last week about what President Biden's trying to do in terms of opening up a humanitarian corridor in Gaza. The EU foreign ministers and heads of government are meeting today, I think it is, to try and hammer out a common European position. But these are all on the margins. Everyone knows Israel's going in at some point with a ground invasion. We're on the margins of the what you can do to ameliorate that, how you can help the Palestinian citizens in Gaza. But who is looking to the bigger, wider picture of the post-conflict, the post-Israel invasion of how on earth you put Humpty Dumpty back together again, how on earth you kind of reconstruct some kind of stability in that region. And the big players like Saudi are going to have to step up if anything's going to happen there. There's a piece in the Financial Times um, by John Sawyers, former head of uh, MI6, talking about that solution potentially being some kind of uh, international protectorate in Gaza in the end, and that would have to be kind of Arab-led. But, I mean, getting from here to there seems an impossibly difficult uh, road. For those who don't know John Sawyers, he not only is James Bond, he looks like James Bond. He, right. he cut a very dashing figure. He was the, he was the head of MI6 when oh. I was Chancellor. And I remember during the Libyan conflict, he impressed everyone with his knowledge of Libya, which I have to say most people in the British government didn't know much about Libya. But he'd been the ambassador, I think, in Egypt, as well as his career in SIS, the intelligence service. And he, he produced this map from the Second World War, which showed the road that Rommel had used in Libya in order to attack British forces in Egypt. And this road turned out 70 years later to be pretty crucial as well. And I, I remember sitting there thinking... Ah, this is a pretty impressive head of uh, British intelligence. I'm glad we've got him in the room. Well, his roadmap um, for um, 
the two-state solution or for stability in Gaza is in the Financial Times. But uh, this feels like a very difficult road to, to walk. I thought there was one thing I picked up actually in, in when I was there. I spoke to a former US national security advisor. That's you know, the top dog on national security in America back in the day. And there were a couple of points he made, which are sort of obvious when you hear them, but I have to say they weren't in front of my mind. He made two points. One is the Americans are very focused on the hostages. And, you know, I remember from my time in politics and in government, you know, hostage situations can completely dominate, you know, number 10 or, or the White House. And they're incredibly emotive, very difficult for the prime minister or the president involved. I mean, I, I know that David Cameron would, you know, really agonize about how to handle hostage situations, whether to send in the SAS, which was always a prime ministerial decision, and risk the hostage being killed. It's a tragically happened in one hostage rescue with us in West Africa. And I'll tell you something interesting that David insisted on doing, although uh, many of his senior advisors thought he shouldn't. He thought he should watch the videos that were recorded of these hostages that ISIS had taken, British hostages, before they were executed. And they would often make a direct appeal. They'd often say, they'd address their kind of final video message to David Cameron. And David felt he should watch them, even though, of course, it was pure kind of propaganda and almost sort of designed to get under his skin and into his head and mess with it. But, you know, David, a very level-headed individual, he thought he owed it to these hostages who were about to be killed to listen to what they had to say. In Israel, that's not just one hostage or, you know, half a dozen hostages. It's 200 hostages, many, many families who've organized themselves. And there's enormous pressure on the Israeli government to do something about it. And of course, the the release this week of a, a very small number, four hostages, has, I think, complicated the situation because it suggests that you could get more out if uh, Israel held off from its invasion, which is no doubt exactly what Hamas are, are trying to get people to think. And then second, the need to reinforce US bases and embassies across the region is one of the reasons why Biden is playing for time with the Israelis, trying to forestall the big ground invasion and rushing out air defense systems, which Biden himself had withdrawn. I, I didn't actually appreciate this until I looked into it a couple of years ago. But, you know, they're expecting a big anti-US reaction across the Middle East once the ground fighting really gets underway. And it, it just reminds you that, you know, these governments, these prime ministers and presidents are having to weigh a whole set of issues, which aren't just about your attitude towards Israel or the humanitarian crisis in in Gaza, you're also looking at what do you do about your own citizens? Some of them may be hostages. What are you doing about your own soldiers or embassies around the world? And any one of those issues can completely dominate an administration trying to do other things as well at the same time. Well, of course, look, as you say, American military power being built up in potential anticipation of conflict widening, the moment Iran becomes more drawn into this if that's what happens and that's when the economics gets very dangerous but then of course it's also the case that joe biden's a politician and he's got to get elected in america and he has to balance his own party and political support um it wasn't more than a few days ago that america was standing out against um the un french calls for some kind of humanitarian ceasefire pause and then this week we saw a shift and Secretary of State Blinken 
now saying that we do need to have space for there to be humanitarian support and for people to be able to leave Gaza. That is a shift in the American position. That felt to me probably driven by American politics. So you, I think you have been a Sherpa. For those who don't know what a Sherpa is, it's not just someone who helps you climb a mountain. It's the name given to people who prepare summits, political summits uh, like the G7 or the G20. And I think the, the Sherpas of the world will be working on these, what appear to be quite semantic differences between, you know, are we calling for a pause, a humanitarian pause, humanitarian pauses, in the Israeli attack on Gaza, are we calling for humanitarian windows? That's what the Germans are calling for. They're the strongest supporters of Israel inside the EU. Or are they calling for ceasefires? And these words, they appear, you know, to be, there's not, sounds like there's not much difference between them, but they do matter, don't they? And they're having a particular impact actually here in domestic politics inside the Labour Party, as you told us on this podcast a week ago, they would. A good example of those language issues is uh, what was said by um, actually Labour frontbencher Yasmin Qureshi in Parliament on Wednesday. This is collective punishment of the Palestinian people in Gaza for crimes they did not commit. How many more innocent Palestinians must die before this Prime Minister calls for humanitarian ceasefire? Yeah. Ed, explain to our listeners why... That statement by Qureshi, who many people might agree with, you know, why wouldn't you want a ceasefire? Why wouldn't you be concerned about humanitarian suffering? Why is that problematic for Keir Starmer? And why would people not want a ceasefire? I mean, I'm not calling myself for a ceasefire. I'll come on and explain why I think that's right not to call for a ceasefire. But do, I think it's interesting for listeners to understand because they'll have listened to Yasmin Qureshi and you know, she's clearly very emotive in what she's saying and there'll be a lot of sympathy. Well, as we said last week, there are lots of Labour MPs with large Muslim populations in their constituencies, as well as Muslim MPs themselves, and people more widely who have been very upset at what's been happening in Gaza. And I think many of those people, Yasmin would be one of these, who are also very upset, horrified by what Hamas did in Israel. But... Um, they are also worrying, as she said, about um, Palestinian citizens in, in Gaza. And there's been a, a big upswell of emails and concern, pressure on Keir Starmer. Actually, Keir Starmer, having done an interview which we played last week on LBC, where he appeared to suggest that Israel was within its rights to restrict water and electricity into Gaza, then clarify that isn't what he was um, saying. And I mean, he's definitely responded to those concerns over the last week. But fundamentally, he's not changed his position, which is, I think, for him, uh, supporting Israel and showing this as a clear break from the Corbyn era has been an imperative for him politically. It's what he believes. But of course, compared to the discipline of the Labour Party conference, there's been rather less discipline over the last um, week or so. And Yasmin Qureshi from the front bench using the phrase ceasefire, which is absolutely not a phrase Kistama has been using at all. I think the interesting thing, though, he was positioned between, on the one hand, America opposing the UN calls for ceasefire, on the one hand, and kind of French support for that, on the other. He was basically with the the Americans, Keir Starmer. But then 
the American position shifted. And the American position shifted, I think, between Yasmin Qureshi saying those remarks in the House of Commons in Prime Minister's questions and Keir Starmer's media people needing to explain why what she was saying was consistent with what Keir Starmer was saying. And in that intervening period, because American Secretary Blinken then calls for a humanitarian pause in order to get humanitarian support into Gaza, Keir Starmer, I think, decided he absolutely didn't want to be in a harder position than the Americans. The Americans shifted, Keir Starmer shifted, and that enabled them to say that what Yasmin Qureshi was saying was broadly consistent with that. Although, as you say, the word ceasefire isn't a word Keir Starmer is still using now, nor Blinken, nor Rishi uh, Sunak. But it, it tells you that these words are very difficult. And it's also a position which is shifting hour by hour. And it may be, if it hadn't been for Blinken, Yasmin Qureshi would have been in difficulty. Yeah, and I think we should you know, explain that you know, a ceasefire, and the reason I personally wouldn't support a ceasefire, is essentially denying Israel's right to pursue Hamas, to try and destroy Hamas, as a not just a punishment, but a legitimate response to what Hamas did to those Israeli citizens. Whereas a humanitarian pause, sounds a very similar thing, of course, is not that. It enables the implication of a pause is that you can restart. It's not straightforward, by the way, because allowing fuel into Gaza, that's fuel that might end up in the hands of Hamas and uh, might help their efforts to fight Israel, fire rockets at Israel and so on. So anyway, obviously, look, this issue is continuing to dominate politics. It's continuing to dominate the focus of governments across the world. And it's continuing to... I think it's been a bit of a wake-up call for Labour in opposition, actually. I think this is the first time that Keir Starmer and the Labour Party for quite a long time have had to deal with a foreign policy situation like this and where you aren't the government, but what you say suddenly matters and matters more because the election is coming. I was talking to one senior uh, backbencher, actually a senior backbencher with a big Muslim population in his country, but a pretty tough guy who was in government when we were in government. And he said, you know, people are going to grow up. He said, you know, in government, you deal with these situations day by day and you've got to have some, some discipline and understand that it's really hard and you've got to you know, understand how difficult it is for the leader to navigate through these situations. There are choices. You know, Tony Blair took a hard line before he stood down as prime minister when um, you had the Israeli Hezbollah conflict in Lebanon. Gordon Brown and David Miliband in particular took a more critical line on Israel. There are choices that you can make in government and in opposition if you're a political leader. I think, though, that the thing Keir Starmer has not managed yet to do is capture the, the emotional concern. The thing which Tony Blair and Gordon Brown in particular were very good at doing was showing that they really cared and were worrying about the humanitarian issues. You could imagine Gordon Brown kind of leading the drive in the way that Blinken has been talking about humanitarian pauses without needing to use the word ceasefire or criticising or doubting Israel's right to respond. And I think part of the, the, the challenge for Keir Starmer is to sort of make that emotional connection. And he needs to do more of that. But what he'll be doing is looking around um, his parliamentary party and noting the people who are um, kind of making big public statements and causing a lot of grief and thinking, you know, in government we'll have to be more disciplined. So that's just a reminder that uh, life is not straightforward as leader of the opposition. And although Keir Starmer hopes to be the Prime Minister in about a year's time. It's not a completely smooth road to number 10. Of course, there is a current occupant of number 10, 
uh, Rishi Sunak, and he has just celebrated, I'm sure he would regard it as a celebration, his first year in office. And we're going to have a look at how has he done, and in particular at those five pledges he made to the British people. So this week marks uh, the first anniversary of Rishi Sunak becoming Prime Minister. He did a snazzy video about his achievements. The opinion polls don't seem to be um, quite as praising for him as he might like. Clearly, he's he's pitched his tent on delivering these five pledges, which we're going to talk about. But what's the mood, do you think, like in Downing Street? Are they feeling like it's on track? Or are they in that mindset, which sometimes happens in politics? I've seen it in Downing Street, where people think you know, we're not getting the credit we deserve. Yeah, they're definitely in the uh, we're not getting the credit we deserve <laughs> um, uh, category. What I think they would feel is that they have made it through the first year. They think they don't get enough credit. This is not just Rishi Sunak's view, but the people around Rishi Sunak for restoring sanity and integrity and order and discipline to the British government after the chaotic Liz Truss and Boris Johnson period. Uh, they also feel they haven't got enough credit for essentially ending the Tory civil wars. Now, you may not feel like that to people on the outside, but when Sunak started, there was lots of talk of a Boris Johnson coup. Boris Johnson's not in Parliament anymore. Nadine Doris was sounding off. As uh, Rishi Sunak noted uh, this week, he's actually got a more sympathetic MP for Mid Bedfordshire, even though uh, that's a Labour MP now <laughs> as a result of the by-election. That was the best joke in, um, in Primus's questions for some months. Yes, and very nice, a good touch of self-deprecation, which um, can, you know works in the House of Commons. And a um, question, George. When you say they, hmm. does they mean Rishi Sunak and his team, or does it mean Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt as a team, Prime Minister and Chancellor? Certainly Jeremy Hunt, I think, would say we should be getting some credit for restoring stability to the British economy after the chaotic period last autumn when uh, you know we had a mini financial crisis with the pension funds and uh, the UK government guilt, the government debt yields started to spiral. But it is true that Rishi Sunak is more of a lone player than a team. He, he inspires a lot of confidence from the people around him, including the very senior politicians, who particularly remember they have lived through firsthand the Johnson period. And by the way, I should say, Next week in the COVID inquiry, which we touched on in our podcast last week, I think we're going to get some pretty astonishing and, frankly, uh, shocking messages, WhatsApp messages and the like being published from that Johnson period, which will show people just what a complete nightmare it was for many people working in 10 Downing Street and who worked in the top of the government at the time. And potentially some things that are going to cause some real problems for the individuals who were in charge at the time. Um, I feel as though you know more than you're telling us. Well, I've got to be a little bit careful here. It's a judicial inquiry. But from what I understand, there is some pretty staggering things that have been said on those WhatsApp messages by not just uh, Boris Johnson, but key advisors like Dominic Cummings, really pretty disgusting language and misogynistic language. But I think that's all I can say because I've already appeared once before the COVID inquiry and I don't want to appear again before. <laughs> and it's just a reminder of you know what an absolute bedlam it was in number 10. And that was before you had the Liz Truss period, which was you know, also pretty chaotic. So I think you know, the fact that Sunak, you know, no one doubts that 
you know, Sunak is a person who works hard, who reads his briefing, who is in command of his government, who is not on the take. You know, these are all things that um, he feels he should be getting credit for. The truth is he's not getting credit much from the British people for these things. And I, that's the source of the frustration. Because although he has somewhat improved from absolute dire situation, the opinion poll ratings of the Tories over the last year, they are still way behind Labour. And of course, we're another year closer to that general election. So the time to recover the gap has shrunk dramatically. I mean, he um, made these five pledges, three of them were the economy, to get inflation down, to get the economy growing, to get the national debt coming down, him and Jeremy Hunt. I guess, I mean, the question is, for these pledges, and more generally for the opinion polling, is Rishi Sunak being judged by what is happening now and whether he and Jeremy Hunt are delivering this year or is the overhang of the previous years, the Liz Trust period, the chaos of last, the last autumn, the fact that he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer in the last few years, is that the thing which is sort of driving the opinion polls? Is the public thinking that we've just had enough and that therefore they don't want to listen? Is, isn't that the thing which will be worrying them? Well, I think on, on the economy, it's uh, we're not quite at Christmas yet, but it is the um, ghosts of uh, past, present and future. You know, the past is the Liz Trust episode, which obviously Keir Starmer correctly keeps coming back to and uh, trying to pin Britain's economic woes on the Conservative government and the decisions of last year. Second, you've got the current economic environment. So you mentioned those three pledges, but, you know, they're only just being met. Inflation has halved, but that doesn't mean that prices are going down. It means prices just aren't going up as much as they used to go up. Debt is still, national debt is still rising. And although the economy has grown a little bit this year, 0.5%, that is, you know, by historic comparisons, pretty flat. So that's the present situation. And then you've got the future situation, which we've discussed and we'll discuss again, which is the looming potential recession, which the Bank of England's high interest rates are going to induce. And if it's not a recession, it's going to feel like a pretty flat period. But there are a couple other pledges I think we should look at. The one is on uh, the NHS waiting lists. And then the other is on stop the boats, which I think people at the time thought was the one he was least likely to be able to achieve and was the biggest kind of hostage to fortune. But he's made some pretty staggering progress, I would say. He's, you know, this is a hard issue for any government, as you can see across Europe. But he has got the crossings down by a third over the last year. There were 37,000 and now there are 26,000. And he is about to clear this huge backlog of the asylum cases, 90,000 odd asylum cases. He will feel, Zunak will feel, I've delivered that. And by the way, Labour would put that at risk and I can make it an election issue. But he said a year ago, he was going to stop asylum seekers in hotels. And there are more people in hotels now than there were a year ago. He said he was going to stop the boats, stop the boats. And on Monday, 385 migrants came into the UK. And his problem politically is he didn't say I'd get it down. He said I'd stop it. And every week between now and the election, he's at risk. If the weather is better and the migrant flows are still coming, the people can turn around and say, you said stop the boats and look what is happening here in front of us. Uh, the thing which comes to my mind was in 1970, Labour had said, we're getting the trade deficit down. And then suddenly in the election campaign, the trade deficit went up. It was actually two jumbo jets, which Britain had bought. But it was a big moment where Heath could say they failed on the economy. Look at the evidence. They said it was getting better. It's got worse. And it lost them the 
but election. Do you think I think for Rishi Sunak, stop the boats, I think is that is that issue. I mean, look, immigration is a very difficult issue for both political parties. And I remember in the 2005 campaign when I was a junior shadow minister and David Cameron was one of my colleagues and, you know, David himself had real concerns about the campaign that Michael Howard was running and expressed them privately to Michael. The, uh, you know, are you thinking what we're thinking campaign, which was trying to get people alarmed about what Labour was doing with asylum seekers, a bit like now. So it's a it's a difficult issue for the Conservatives, but it's also a difficult issue for Labour. Let's be honest, I don't think Labour has really sorted out its position on immigration. And, you know, there are echoes of the kind of divisions you have inside the Labour Party over Gaza on immigration too. And so I think what Sunak will think is, I don't have to stop all the boats. I just have to prove at the election that I'm going to be better at doing this than Starmer. I think he's going to have a tougher task, by the way, when it comes to the NHS, because the Tories might be trusted more on immigration. They're not so trusted on the NHS, certainly historically. And he made that pledge that waiting lists should come down. And of course, the waiting lists now stand at over 7 million. I think that's going to be a really difficult election issue for the Tories and not helped by the fact, of course, that the doctors are on strike and they haven't found a way as a government to bring that strike to an end. Well, of course, it didn't work for Howard in 2005 to try and drive home the asylum attack. That's a bit like saying Keir Starmer right now should be going for Sunak on asylum. That won't work as his big election issue. But it's another thing for Rishi Sunak himself to make stopping the boats, the thing which will win him the election. That feels to be a much, much more risky thing. I do think, though, that you're right. I mean, ironically, boats may still be coming across the channel next summer. By then, NHS waiting times may be falling rather than rising. But the problem with the NHS is it's not really about the waiting time statistics. It's whether people's friends, family members, going to the GP, going to A&E, knowing somebody who's a nurse as your next door neighbour, whether people are feeling the NHS is getting better or not. And for a long time, the NHS hasn't feel like it's been getting better, it's been getting worse. And can Rishi Sunak turn that round over the next year? If I was him, I would be talking a lot more about the NHS and worrying about it a lot more than he is. Aren't you just uh, then, you know, talking up, raising the salience, to use the political jargon, of what is always a kind of great issue for the Labour Party in elections, the NHS? You know, normally the Tories want to talk up the salience of issues like the economy, immigration, crime, and talk down... And I, you know, in terms of the airspace you give it, issues like the NHS, because I don't see how the Conservatives are going to win the election on the NHS. Well, so I think what you're saying is it may not have been a great pledge to have made as one of your big five pledges then, which may be right. I'm not saying. But you if you didn't have be... the NHS in those top five, then everyone would also point I, that out. I think what I'm saying more internally is I would be having meetings and worrying and getting my health secretary in and talking to the chancellor about what I can do to try and make the NHS feel in a better place next year. I wouldn't necessarily want to lead on it publicly, but internally, that's the thing I'd be worrying about. But here's an interesting thing, both on the boats, but particularly NHS. Given that there's no money left, to coin a phrase, how would a Labour government be any different? You know, how would they manage these public services? And it, I think there's a sort of Labour assumption, well, just because you've got a Labour health secretary, everyone's going to be thrilled. But you've got a Labour health secretary in Wales, and the situation isn't any better. Indeed, it's worse in Wales. So what is Labour's answer going to be if they actually win this election to try to manage these big problems like these enormous NHS waiting lists? 
It's very, very hard because um, the economy's not growing and Labour said they're not going to raise taxes and uh, the NHS needs more money. So you are right. That is the, um, the post-election um, dilemma for whoever wins the, the next election. And as the Institute for Fiscal Studies said a few days ago, cutting taxes isn't going to be on anybody's agenda because the pressure to spend more on the NHS is going to grow and grow and grow. I think you're completely right. That is the political challenge for the next five years for whoever wins. We need to bring back your uh, targets that you're always telling me I shouldn't have scrapped. Well, I mean, look, I was in Greece, as I said, giving evidence to the Budget Committee of the Parliament about um, Greece moving towards kind of performance budgeting, which is having targets which departments sign up to to deliver and show the public that um, they're getting outputs for their their money. And uh, this is what I told them. I do a podcast with George Osborne. But on Thursday, I'm going to tell him this. I don't remember him being shy about giving Greece advice about what to do in the early part of the last decade. But I have come to Athens today to see Greece leading in performance budgeting. And I think you are now in a very strong position to give advice back to George Osborne and the British government. And we need to copy what's happening here in Greece and get back with the programme. Look, I, I protected you, George. I didn't mention the Elgin. I didn't mention the marbles. I didn't mention the British Museum or the Elgin marbles. I didn't go into any of that. I just pointed out that you know Iceland, Germany, Austria, Belgium, Greece—they're all copying the British leadership on performance budgeting and having proper output targets to show the public we're delivering. And then I have to admit to them, but you ditched them in 2010. What were you doing? Well. Frankly, those new Labour targets, I don't think, were serving a great purpose. And if anything, a whole system was being... Anyway, we can can save it for our evidence before the Greek Parliament. And Philip Hammond in 2019 said he was going to bring them back, you know, when he was Chancellor. Right, I'd forgotten that uh, key highlight of Philip Hammond's career. But uh, anyway, I'm I'm glad you're out there smoothing things over with the Greeks because as chairman of the British Museum, uh, I've got some uh, conversations I need to have with uh, the Greeks, including their pretty impressive Prime Minister, Mr Mitsotakis. He's uh, he's running the Greek economy uh, quite a lot better than the British economy is being run at the moment. Anyway, George, performance budgeting is what we've got to look at. However, we need to move on because we're going to now turn to our third subject and the AI summit. We've got a... um, Brilliant Artificial intelligence. Come on. We've got to spell these things out. I know. Everybody calls it AI. Uh, with Matt Clifford, who is an entrepreneur, Rishi Sunak's advisor on artificial intelligence. He's going to talk to us next and tell us why this summit is more important and more significant for Britain than maybe people quite realise. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. Now we're going to talk about the big AI summit that Britain is hosting next week in Bletchley Park, which is where uh, the Nazi codes were broken during the Second World War. And we are joined by my friend Matt Clifford. Now, the last time, Matt, I checked in with you, you were a successful internet entrepreneur, tech specialist. And now 
when I was emailing you this morning, I realized you've got a government email address. You, you've, you've gone, you've, you've become part of the big state. <laughs> and the last time that I was with you, we were at Harvard earlier in the year and we were walking along talking and you said you weren't sure that um, any governments were really understanding the importance of the artificial intelligence revolution. It feels like um, you've made a bit of progress in persuading people. Well, you know, I mean, I, I am still an entrepreneur. I have taken a leave of absence from my day job as CEO of Entrepreneur First, which I've been building the last 12 years, to, to come and be the Prime Minister's representative for this summit. And partly, Ed, for the reasons you describe. I, you know, I think this technology is the... You know, one of the most important things happening anywhere in the world, and I think governments, you know, do need to take it seriously. And, you know, this, this government is, and, you know, I feel really lucky to have a small part in that. How are you finding uh, that we've, we've made the transition, Ed and I, from the public sector to the private sector, which is can be quite a hard transition. As, uh, and, you know, often the cultures are very different. And there you are, I'm looking at you on the screen here in front of me, and uh, you're in a government department or maybe in the House of Commons somewhere. Has it been a sort of shock to the system or, or are you pleasantly surprised that your country's been well run all these years? <laughs> Honestly, it's been great. I mean, I feel I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky to be working on a project that the Prime Minister thinks is very important, uh, the government thinks is very important, and, and that's really a sort of cross-departmental effort. You know, so I think there's about 100 of us working on, on the summit, and I think the people have been great. A hundred? So. I, I wow, be, that's a big I team. might be uh, wrong about that, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of us, and... Um, you know, what I would say is it's really great to see how people come together for something with a very tight deadline where there's a lot to do. And, um, you know, like whatever myths there are about civil service, a civil servants not working hard uh, have been dispelled by the last uh, eight weeks. It's one of the most intense uh, experiences of my professional life, for sure. It's interesting. And and for the for Britain, for the Prime Minister, this is quite a big moment because this is Britain leading calling a summit, the first summit of its type. George and I have both been involved in the beginning of things. And internationally, it's always hard because there's always scepticism, particularly from the Americans, but generally from other countries thinking, you know, do we need to go to another meeting? And why is it Britain holding it? And uh, what is the thing which you could achieve with this summit? I mean, are you going to deliver a blueprint a new regulatory approach, a new institution, or is actually the most important thing to get people to turn up and agree that they will come back in six months or a year time and start a process? I mean, how ambitious can you actually be at the moment? I think it's worth contextualising this in, in sort of the quite extraordinary trajectory of AI's technology. I mean, a year ago, you would not be, have been inviting anyone to come and talk about AI on the podcast because it was before ChatGPT was released. You know, it was a, an area of enormous academic interest, but, you know, it hadn't captured the imagination of the public and certainly not of policymakers. And so, you know, I, I think the way I would frame this is that we're standing at this extraordinary moment in this technology where, you know, you'll have played with ChatGPT and, you know, if you pay for it, you might have even played with the most advanced version of it, GPT-4, and it is very powerful. But it's worth saying that, the companies that building ChatGPT and the, and the models like it, they're about to start training the next generation of those models. And in some cases, they're going to be investing up to 100 times more in that next generation of models. And no one, including those companies, knows what that means for the capabilities of those models. And so really, the, the big opportunity for this summit is to say, 
we're actually standing on the brink of maybe a you know a, a vitally important moment in the history of technology globally and we have to come together and start talking about it of course we're not going to resolve you know the whole global institutional blueprint for how we deal with this you know next week but what i think we can try and do is to get to a shared understanding of what this technology is how fast it's moving and what the risks are. And that's really the framing we've given to the summit. Can we understand the risks at the frontier and start collaborating on, on not just understanding them, but mitigating them? Do you think people should focus as they are on the risks? I mean, the headlines on the radio this morning about Prime Minister Sunak's speech were all about the kind of negative threats from AI. And maybe we'll come on to those. But you know, when I've talked to you before about other things, you're a techno optimist. Massively. That's that's the that's that's the phrase, by the way, for those who don't know that the kind of Silicon Valley folk are using at the moment to say people are focusing on all the downsides of this technology when of course there are incredible upsides for what it might do for the way we educate our kids or the way we cure things like cancer or the way we deal with climate change. You know, this could be the most powerful technology humans have ever deployed against these problems. So is the whole kind of thing cast a bit negatively or is that the only way you can get anyone's attention or indeed is that the most important role the state has in this because the rest of it, the private sector can get on and do by itself? Well, you're right, George. I'm a huge techno optimist. I spent my entire career building technology startups. You cannot get more pro-innovation, pro-tech and pro-startup than I am. I suppose that's why, though, I do think that showing the public that we are listening on risk and taking action is so important. Because actually, if you look at where the public is on this in general, they, you know, they are worried about AI. Now you could say, well, by talking about the risk, you made that worse. But actually, I think some of their concerns are well-founded. This should be, and I hope will be, the most positive, important technology that's created in our lifetimes, maybe ever. But there is something very weird about this technology, which is that unlike most software systems where when the designers and developers make it, they know what it's going to do for a given set of inputs, what the set of outputs are, this is a technology that actually, it's a closer analogy to us building it is that we grow it. I mean, it's not perfect analogy, but it's, it's a technology that we don't fully understand. And so I think what we need to do is say, the only way we're going to capture the enormous upside here, the only way we're going to get all those benefits to, to healthcare, to education, to the economy as a whole, is if we make sure that it's safe and trustworthy. And, you know, when I think about this as a techno-optimist, I look at what are the great technological breakthroughs of the past that we didn't fully capture because we didn't deal with the risks and we didn't reassure people on the risks. And, you know, I, speaking purely personally, you know, I think of something like, you know, nuclear energy where you know, the Three Mile Island moment set back that technology by decades, maybe permanently. And we really need to avoid a Three Mile Island moment in AI. And that, that's why I think we need to talk about the risks. We need to be serious about what we can do about mitigating them. Ed, what's your advice? I was going to ask Ed. Ed helped organise the G20 summit that Gordon Brown hosted in 2009, which was like a, you know, a very successful summit. What would you be suggesting to Matt and his team for next week? What should they be trying to land as realistic outcomes. I wouldn't worry at all about any of the stuff about is every global leader coming? That doesn't doesn't matter. The important thing is to get countries around the table and get a communique. You need to make a statement which says we're going to do the following things and then come back and have a second meeting because it can't be a one-off. It needs uh, momentum. And I think that at a certain point, we're going to have to explain to the public, I think more clearly, what the opportunities really are. I guess the question I would like to ask you is, is about this risk thing, which is a sort of slightly more kind of cynical view about 
the risk point, which is, you know, why are all these big companies talking up risk and all these inventors saying it could be very dangerous? Isn't part of the thing here that they quite like being big and powerful? And what they want to say to governments is don't allow lots of sort of new entrants and small companies and outsiders to come in because they could be really risky and destabilizing. Trust us. I was talking to your colleague, Jonathan Black, who George and I both know from the Treasury last night. He's working with you as an yeah, advisor. He and he was saying that in Europe, where they're talking about tougher regulation, the startup situation in continental Europe has got worse over the last year. And that for the big companies, that's quite a good thing, because if you can talk about strong regulation, that sort of entrenches their position and their control over this technology. There is a, a danger that this conversation about risk and regulation actually works to the advantages of big tech and against the interests of people like you, the outsider entrepreneur who wants to come in and shake things up. Yeah, I mean, lots of people have made this argument to me. And, you know, my, my, my first thing I say is you could not find someone who is more more pro-startup than I am. That is literally what I've, uh, you know, spent, spent my entire career doing. I think this is sort of has it on its head, to be honest. I, th I think what's really, what we're really saying, certainly what I think you'll hear at the summit, is that we actually want startups to be able to go to the races and not worry about regulation, because actually, by and large, they're not building things that are dangerous. You know, the, the constraint today on building frontier AI is access to truly enormous computational resource. When you look at the amount that Google, that OpenAI, that Anthropic are spending, we're talking about having to invest billions and billions in order to build these systems. And so, you know, I, I think what we're actually saying is, if you're going to build something unusually powerful and unusually dangerous, then you should face an unusual level of scrutiny. If you're not, if you're doing a narrow AI system to, for example, improve the detection of breast cancer or to improve the sort of quality of um, teaching materials in the classroom, go to the races. Like, we have no interest in slowing you down on that. I think it's sort of a, a misplaced fear. And I, I suppose the other thing I'd say is, actually, if you look at who's doing the talking on, on risk, you know, the, the people leading these companies, particularly, you know, DeepMind and OpenAI and Anthropic, these are people who've been talking about risk for 10 years, since before they had billions of dollars at their disposal. This is just a sincerely held view about what happens if we don't approach this moment with appropriate care. And so, yes, obviously, we need to avoid regulatory capture. Whenever that happens, that's a bad thing. But I do think that fear, at least for this summit and at least for this topic, is, is somewhat misplaced. Now, what about when you organize these summits? I mean, I organized the G7 summit and I was involved in the G8 summit. There's all sort of like questions like who's in the room who sits where the menu you, the, the menu, menu for the food you, who's going to cook the meal you, you normally have to get some young british chef in to do some special thing and i had to got... ring jamie oliver and ask him to come and um, right. do the g20 summit in and it's not being on my list um, because of i knew from education and uh, and could he bring some of his young staff from his startup to show these global leaders so you doing Matt? You doing who? Who have you phoned? And who's sitting where? Is you know who? Who's the prime minister going to be sitting next to? That's always that's the, is he is he going to choose a politician, or is he going to choose you know Sam Altman, the ChatGPT founder, to be the guy sitting next to him? Well, you, you won't be surprised to hear that. I'm not going to. I can't get into uh, that level of detail. What I would say is that. Oh, the plasma is the most interesting thing about these summits. <laughs> there is, there is, and where are the Chinese sitting? That's what everyone's going to want to know. There is a lot of detail that goes into these things. Um, 
But you're uh, not. We are all over it. We have we have been, you know, the, the the phrase of the day in AI is red teaming. You know, this idea that you need external experts to look at these AI models and see what they're capable of. I can assure you, we've been red teaming every eventuality for the summit. And what could, could just like just because we've taken too much of your time, and he's got a summit. He's, to he's got a summit. He's got. A, I've got to go from shrubbery. here to he's Butcher got, Park. A, uh, I can see my team in the background, right. sort of looking at the. <laughs> come thing. on, come on. Okay, so just give me your kind of perfect outcome if you could. Well, you know, in a couple of sentences, you got Rishi Sunak, you got all these techno-optimist kings standing and queens standing next to him, you got all these foreign leaders there. What's the kind of in a couple of sentences, what has everyone agreed at the end of this? I think, actually, you know, I wish we'd had Ed on the team from the start. I thought Ed's, Ed's, Ed's framing is exactly right. If we can get to, you know, the end of this and say, look, people actually had a genuine conversation. They changed their minds. They learned something. And they agreed that we need to keep talking about this in an urgent way, taking action on the most important risk while preserving that space to innovate. That will have been a great, great outcome. Any summit which agrees to have another summit is a success. Let's see where we get to next Thursday. Definitely. But listen, Matt, the one thing, Matt, is let nobody else hold the pen. The communicators all. Whatever you do, don't let the Treasury or the Germans anywhere near the pen. You'll be in terrible trouble. Make sure you write the words. Thank you for this advice, Ed. <laughs> Enjoy your trip to Bletchley Park and thank you for taking time to join us. Great to see you both. Thanks so much. Well, it was great of Matt to join us because he's exceptionally busy with this summit. I think this is probably the thing that Rishi Sunak cares most about as a policy issue. I think he really is interested in what AI is doing. He's a educated on the West Coast of America at Stanford. His eyes light up when he meets these tech founders. You can see that. Uh, and I've, I imagine he thinks this summit is a big part of the Sunak legacy, even if he ends up winning the election and being prime minister for quite a few more years. And I think you detect some of that excitement and enthusiasm in Matt's conversation with us. I think that's right. I think that the thing which he wants to talk about is the positive. And yet so much of the conversation about AI is about the risk and the danger. And it's quite frightening. And, you know, rightly so, because it's quite hard for a rogue state to get their hands on a nuclear weapon. There's very few states in the world who have nuclear weapons, but it's not difficult for a rogue state to get their hands on this technology. And of course, the point about the technology, what people worry about is AI might start doing things which an individual dodgy country doesn't understand and they lose control. And that's how you end up with kind of global catastrophe. So it's all quite scary. The only thing I'd say, which I thought Matt was trying to do, is talk about the positive. And if I was Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer, I'd want to be talking about the positive, as you said earlier, the cancer cure, the new jobs, the new opportunities which can come from this. Uh, it's quite doom and gloom. And if I was Keir Starmer and I was thinking, is this my 1964 Howard Wilson white heat of technology moment? I'd want to be talking about some positives and, you know, maybe we'll see more of that. Right, on to questions. Thanks again for the brilliant response. We've had loads of interesting questions and very constructive comments, some not so constructive, uh, but thank you for those as well. Uh, keep sending everything in to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. So our first question is from Damon in Chesterfield. Damon. Hi, George and Ed. Really enjoying the podcast. Would like to ask if you could have your time again on your political careers, what is one major decision you would now like to have taken differently? George, what do you think? Well, I, I guess I keep thinking about 
is there more I could have done to persuade David Cameron not to have a referendum on the EU? Because that's the defining moment of the Cameron government. And I think it's had very bad consequences for the UK ever since. And I've often asked myself, is there more I could have done using my personal relationship with David Cameron? Obviously, there are lots of budget decisions I would have done. I might not have taxed pasties in the way I tried to in 2012. And I think that decision to... When Seb Coe said to me, my, my good friend, why don't you come and present a medal at the London Paralympics? I think if I had my time again, I would have said, thanks so much, Seb, but uh, I'm going to pass. Booed in the Olympic Stadium, but at least they knew who you were. It's <laughs> well, a small consolation when you're standing in the middle of the stadium and you've got, um, I think, only half the audience. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it made you, made you realize I'm much more sympathetic now when I go to a football game and I see someone miss a penalty in the entire stadium booze. I can tell you, it's not a great experience. I'll tell you, if you were actually on the field doing the hurdles or the pole vault that have been booing even louder i reckon <laughs> they certainly would so come on ed what was your biggest mistake i mean you are right when you have the chance to look back on your time in in kind of politics and government we were both there for kind of a long time like 13 years the list is quite long of things you'd do differently i should have persuaded gordon brown that the tempe tax abolition was a mistake and me and ed Miliband talked about it and we didn't do that and 75p on pension rise and not going ahead with um, transitional controls on immigration in 2004. I think actually the one I'm going to pick out, it's a, uh, for me, just kind of really important that dealing with the baby P um, tragic killing was one of the hardest things that I had to deal with. And it ended up with the independent inspector's report being deeply critical of Shan Shoesmith, who was the head of children's services in Haringey, and um, much more than we expected. And um, I had the power in law to remove her as director of children's services. And the judgment I made was that it wasn't possible to sustain confidence in child protection and to move on without making that decision. And I was advised by um, our departmental lawyers that I shouldn't meet her to tell her that because the employment relationship was between her and Haringey and that uh, I should meet with Haringey and tell them my decision about her statutory role, but the employment issue was a matter for them. And uh, she took us to court and we won and then there was an appeal. And in the end, she got compensation because there should have been a meeting and it would have changed nothing because we would have listened to her, I would have listened to her and made the same decision and I should have had that meeting. And one of the things I learned, which is just a really important thing for cabinet ministers, for ministers, is that having a second piece of legal advice from a QC or a KC in those moments is really important because we fell into a departmental legal process. And uh, I think both myself and the Permanent Secretary David Bell would look back and think that was a big mistake we made and it cost money, but um, we shouldn't have done that. So that's really annoying. Mm, very interesting advice there to budding cabinet ministers. There are quite a few of them knocking around at the moment. Our next question is from Michelle. Hi, Ed and George. I'm really enjoying the podcast and your reflections about government, past and present. So I saw that you launched a King's Harvard paper this week called Why Hasn't Regional Policy Worked? In recent years, politicians from both sides of the political spectrum have recognised the issues arising from this. So my question for you is whether a cross-party consensus is now possible. Thank you. So I should say that Professor Ed Balls, yes, it pains me to say that Ed is a professor, it turns out, uh, Professor Ed Balls at King's College London and a brilliant team. I went to the launch of this uh, 
couple of days ago. They have um, produced a paper on regional policy. They've interviewed all the politicians and civil servants and local government leaders involved in these decisions over many decades. A really impressive piece of work. And I think the big conclusion, Prof, is that there's not enough of a cross-party consensus to have sustained results on the ground if you're trying to reduce the north-south divide and other regional inequalities in Britain. Look, I had to chair this meeting at which um, we had George and Melanie Dawes, who was the local government department, Pat Ritchie, Lord Sainsbury and Peter Mandelson. And Peter Mandelson and George almost came to blows in front of 400 people at King's. Peter was um, very grumpy with George's decision to abolish the regional development agencies in 2010 and he wouldn't let go. I did actually almost see a fight, a physical fight between Peter Mandelson and the then president of the World Bank, Bob Zellick. I promise you, it was, a bit, it was one of these international conferences. You've just reminded me. I, they almost came to physical blows and I had to separate them. But not about regional inequality would be my guess in the UK. But um, the uh, we we did all these interviews. I mean, it took three years, like each one of them an hour long and transcribed them all. And it is very kind of interesting, the story it tells, because on the one hand, I mean, it is amazing regional inequality in Britain has continued to grow under Labour and Conservative governments in a way it hasn't in other countries. We now have more inequality between the South East and the rest of the UK than you have between East and West Germany or North and South Italy. But the thing which really comes through the um, the interviews and the report we did was that this huge frustration that we've never ever managed to put in place a policy and then stick to it and the chopping and changing you've had between governments and I think we are, for the first time, now potentially going to get a political consensus that we can do better and that we can stick with what we've got, stick with the mayors and the combined authorities. I hope try and make that comprehensive across all of England and to have a real focus on tackling regional inequality. And on that, you and Peter Mandelson were agreeing. We, we, we made it up at the end of the session. The breakout <laughs> of consensus is happening. And let's be clear, we both love Peter Mandelson. Definitely. Definitely. And there's there's a website where you can read all of these interviews if you want to lose days, weeks and months of your life. You can. Now, the final question, Ed, is from Rob in Dublin. Hi, Ed and George. Uh, very much enjoying the podcast. My question is for Ed. When Ed Miliband won the Labour leadership, he initially overlooked you for the shadow chancellor role when you were the standout candidate and instead appointed Alan Johnson. He himself admitted that he had no experience with the Treasury and had to buy himself a primer on economics. What happened between you and Ed Miliband to explain this turn of events? It is true that Alan Johnson said he had to buy a primer on economics. Look, he was a great cabinet minister. He's a brilliant uh, politician, but he wasn't steeped in economics. I got into terrible trouble when he was the shadow chancellor. I was on the Wednesday Daily Politics programme, which Andrew Neil presented at the time. So I wasn't in PMQs seeing Ed Miliband and David Cameron locking horns. I was in the TV studio. And then I then got asked afterwards about Alan Johnson and his economic expertise. And I said, I've got loads of economics textbooks. So if Alan wants to borrow any of them, he's very welcome. And that afternoon, I had a separate meeting with Ed Miliband. He totally laid into me and said, why did you say that about Alan? It's so unfair. And it was unfair. And I felt really really bad about it. So, um, you know, maybe that could also go into my moments I regret category. Well, you know, Alan Johnson is is a, a great individual, um, written a brilliant book for anyone who hasn't read it called This Boy about his upbringing in Notting Hill. I mean, I grew up in Notting Hill, but my upbringing was 
so different from the very difficult upbringing he had with his sister. And it's a really heartwarming tale, one of the best books I've read. Uh, so he, he's, you know, he's had a brilliant kind of post-political career. He was a pretty impressive Home Secretary back in the day. But Shadow Chancellor of the, uh, I think it was five Shadow Chancellors I faced, uh, in many ways he struggled most. And he got undone by this question, which was a very simple one, which is, what's the rate of national insurance? And he didn't have the answer. I have to confess, as uh, Chancellor, I looked at what had happened to him and the, the sticky guy. I went back and thought, God, I've got to double check. I know all my tax rates, including national insurance. And uh, I, I used to walk around thereafter with a little card with all the tax rates on it, just so uh, I wasn't caught out like uh, Alan was. He was actually a brilliant health secretary. He, was also, he, he also did a really good interview um, about regional policy for our paper. You can read his 10,000 words on our website. But to answer the question from Rob, I think what happened when N. Miliband was elected leader in 2010, he wanted to show a decisive break from the period of New Labour, from Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. So making me the Shadow Chancellor would have been continuity and he wanted change. And that's what he was trying to do. And it was always slightly odd because he had been a very close advisor to Gordon Brown all those years, but he was trying so hard to distance himself from the Blair-Brown years. He wasn't the New Labour candidate. That was his brother, David. And then he then changed his mind um, a few months later and asked me to be Shadow Chancellor. And I did that job for four years. And uh, in changing his mind, I think what happened with Ed, and I think he said this himself. So um, this, this is not me kind of criticising him. It's reflecting his view, which is he was never kind of one thing or the other. He never was the outsider, non-New Labour radical nor was he the continuity with past Labour governments guy who was going to kind of govern in a sound way and deliver radical but credible change. And he himself, I think, has said he regrets not being more true to himself. And I think he had concluded that by that point that making Michel a Chancellor wasn't being true to himself and he gave me the job anyway. And um, he was always kind of stuck in, an, in a kind of in a never-never land between credibility on the one side and being the radical outsider on the other. And that was part of um, his undoing. Ed Miliband should have just been Ed Miliband. Personally, I think if he'd been David Miliband, we'd have had a tougher time. But we will come back, discuss that, I'm sure, on another occasion. But George, look, the reason why Ed Miliband was leader of the Labour Party is because he beat David Miliband in an election in which he was the better candidate. And it was the Ed Miliband supporters who used to stand outside the hustings with signs saying, Ed speaks human. And that was in contrast to his brother, who they said didn't. So actually, you know, this idea that you and David Cameron people have, that we should somehow, you know, David Miliband was the guy. I mean, you know, I think it would have been a better outcome myself, but I, it's far from clear. All I could say is I jumped up and down like a demented frog when I heard that Ed Miliband had won. Was I that thought... because you thought that I might have won it and that would be the thing you were really scared of? I think... By that point, you'd been knocked out, hadn't you? Yeah, I didn't get, I didn't get the final two. Anyway, th thank you so much for all your questions and comments that you've sent in. We're getting a tremendous response to this podcast. More and more people listening to it. Thank you so much. Um, we're enjoying doing it, and I'm glad you're enjoying listening. And if you are enjoying it, do tell your friends, get them to follow us. They can get our podcast straight into their podcast feed every week. And if you like it, give us a review. Give us as high a star rating as you think you can manage. We'd love it. That's all for this week. See you next Thursday.
Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production.